0: So, Dave. All right, we are back. We have done Morocco, and each of these dominoes—it's—I—I I really feel like that these are—we're in the dominoes uh, falling kind of phase of things because yep. Morocco leads to Tripoli, and Tripoli leads to the Balkan War, and yeah, it's just—they're falling. <laughs> <They're> yes. Falling. <laughs> yes. So today's of episode- course,
1: we couldn't just do the domino part so what began as a simple episode on the italian invasion of tripoli turned into a a look at the history of libya then uh the status of italy before and after
0: yeah but my goodness we are coming back to the this libya war because the military aspect of it is fascinating, mm-hmm. and a lot of what's most interesting about it militarily is after, <laughs> right? This is this is one of those wars that uh, it's like, congratulations, Italy, <laughs> you've won, you've won, uh, you you won a very fast victory over uh, over Libya, and now you got twenty years of war, and uh, of course, Italy committed a genocide in Libya as well i think it's Um, called pacification yeah yeah exactly so uh, when we do that when we come back to it probably for interwar Mm -hmm. we will deal with all of the military aspects of this guerrilla campaign and wow yeah really something so um i'll start Uh, i was reading mainly a book by ali abdul latif ahmeda uh, it's called The Making of Modern Libya, State Formation, Colonization and Resistance, 2009. Uh, I looked up Ali Abdel Latif ahmeda he's a Libyan-American prof uh, based in Maine, the University of New England in Maine, I think. He also published a recent book called Genocide in Libya, which I will certainly return to because genocide in Libya, it does, uh, the Italian you know, genocide in Libya, I'm going to quote for, from it a little bit later. Um, you know, it has all the genocide things, concentration camps and, you know, mass executions and massacres and everything. And, and Ahmed's point is that it's, um, you know, it's not as well known as it should be. And he wants it to be better known. He's got all the receipts. I also looked at a book called Italo-Turkish Diplomacy and the War Over Libya. And you know when, when the book title has a, has a date range, Dave? <laughs> so the date range of this book is uh, 1911 to 1912. <laughs> oh, so it's like a day by day. It's a day by day. Oh dear. <laughs> book. So I, 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 I. Needless to say, uh, I read some parts of it faster than others. <laughs> and uh, and you know, and though that that serves
1: a that serves a purpose, <laughs> mm-hmm. like, twofold. So obviously, uh, Childs is probably the preeminent scholar of italo turkish diplomacy absolutely uh, from 1911
0: to 1912
1: <laughs> absolutely but if you're going to write something on on a larger scale you might want to re- read that and make sure that you know the theory that you're proposing is actually true
0: yes That's true. That's true. That's a good uh, that's a good way of thinking. I I mean,
1: it's not going to be a bestseller, but it it (laughs) serves a purpose. Yeah,
0: exactly. Podcasters everywhere will uh, (laughs) want to consult it. Yeah, it's also one of those books, you know, one of those books where the guys like, you know, this theory was never uh, this theory was just a theory until, of course, the Italians opened their archives, which, you know, finally happened in. 1980 something and that's uh, when I went in there <laughs> you know so yeah. it's, a, it's yeah. a lot of that it's a lot of that you know we've been historians have been wondering about this since uh you know until we until we had access of the to the ottoman documents uh which happened only in this you know year yeah <laughs> so yeah it's that kind of thing it's like like for many decades historians have been wondering exactly what the thought process was in this one one Italian diplomat's mind when he yeah. and now we finally have the answer. So yeah, that's Timothy Childs Italo Turkish Diplomacy in the War over Libya. And then uh the other one is you know those you know those books I you have a couple of them I've seen them uh, Osprey in, in your place. Yeah, it's uh it's called armies of the italian turkish war italian turkish war it's by gabriel esposito and it's an osprey it's like 50 pages lots of kind of pictures paintings panels of of what kinds of equipment the guys had and how they looked and yeah so there's this kind of it's just it's just like it's like a sports it's like reading a sports report like these are the armies this is what they had this is their equipment this is where they fought these are the battles right very um and not doesn't really take a stand on it or anything no no again these are the these are the basics that you if you if you want to take a stand you probably want to want to read these and and see what happened anyway Mm -hmm. um so ahmeda so, Ahmed is talking about pre-1911. He starts with pre 19 It's called the making of modern Libya. So, he starts with pre-1911 society, and his two themes are regionalism and pastoralism. So, tribal alliances competing with each other and contesting the central state in Tripoli. And he identifies three, I guess, uh, centers of gravity. One region is Cyrenaica.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: One is uh, the Fezzan, or Fezzan and then there's Tripoli or Tripolitania. So Cyrenaica is kind of ruled by a tribal grouping called the Sanusis. The Fezzan from 1550 to 1812 is ruled by the Aulad Muhammad, which in Arabic means the sons of Muhammad or the children of Muhammad. So the children of the prophet or the sons of the prophet Muhammad. these are both kind of autonomous. From Tripoli, Tripoli is ruled from 1711 to 1835 by the Karamanli. I guess that's a kind of a dynasty or a ruling tribe or family grouping. And then from 1835 to 1911, it's the Ottomans, uh, the Ottoman states. And and in all of these cases, it's like the the Karamanli state is basically confined to the coastal towns. It's hard to Hard to get state authority going in a desert uh, ec- ecology like uh, Libya uh, is mostly, and and they each have different regions that they are part of. So, Cyrenaica is linked closer to western Egypt. The Fezzan is closer to the Lake Chad region. Um, geographically speaking, mostly arid desert without big rivers so unlike egypt which has the nile right it's all Mm -hmm. about the nile in egypt Uh, libya doesn't have one of those so much the north coast of libya has a mediterranean climate but there's uh, mostly uh fairly scant rainfall the average rainfall in fezan is like 10 millimeters a year (laughs) the greenest greenest uh area of Cyrenaica is 500 to 600 mill- millimeters per year. For reference, uh, Toronto is about 830 millimeters a year and Costa Rica is about 3000 millimeters <laughs> a year. So okay. 10 millimeters gets you a desert and if you wanna go the tropical rainforest, you're gonna need about 3000. So mostly it's hurting. Um, Herding cattle, a little bit of cattle. Uh, There's some cereal cultivation in the rainy season, but the main activity is kind of going back and forth on camel caravans trading. Lots of nomads uh, herding animals. So Tripoli city and Misurata were the biggest cities of, in the 19th century. They had 12,000 inhabitants each. Those were the biggest. The other major towns like Benghazi, etc., had 5,000. The whole Regency, the whole Ottoman Regency, had 1.5 million. Uh, Tripoli, Tripolitania, the area around Tripoli, had 570,000, 126,000 of whom were nomads. So it's a big proportion of the population that's nomad 86,000 semi semi-nomad there's also an interesting colonialist historiography uh which is about some there's a story that there was this group of arabs called the hilali who invaded the maghrib in the medieval times and they were like the mongols of the maghrib and therefore the land was basically only saved by European colonialism apparently the source for this is Ibn Khaldun the 14th century Arab historian but he uh, Ahmida argues that it's a selective reading of Ibn Khaldun <coughs> um and he argues that it was like the the eco climatic conditions were changing in that part of the world since long before the Hilali uh, invasion um and uh, even at least maybe even since before the Roman period the Romans um, also were the ones who introduced the camel which was a kind of oh. a big deal for libyan history <laughs> yeah um, drought and famine are very frequent in this uh, part of the world uh he lists Ahmida lists famines in 1784 1856 mm. 1859 1881 1888 and 1901 to 1903 so constant at the edge of famine constant agriculture at the edge of famine So the major source of revenue is actually trade, uh, trading across uh, the Sahara trade, it's called. And uh, the Ottomans are only able to even get a handle on this through alliances with the important tribal groups. Uh, Tripoli was actually occupied by Spain in 1510. The Ottoman navy took it from the Knights of St. John of Malta, who were allies of Spain, in 1551. That's also when the Aulad Muhammad state in Fezzan was founded in 1550. So they trade with Egypt, Sudan, and other parts of the so-called Maghrib, like Morocco. Uh, they're generally at war um, between the Ottomans and the Aulad Muhammad, but they—they, they, you know—they become they. Sometimes they pay tribute to the Ottomans. Sometimes they fight war with them on and off. Uh, we've we've kind of covered how in the Arab world. Ottoman power has been slowly dissolving for, I don't know, 100, 150 years at this point where local rulers are becoming independent. So he lists Ahmad al them, the Azams in Syria, the Jalilis in Mosul, which is Iraq, the Shahabis in the mountains of Lebanon, Sheikh Dahir al-Umar and Ahmed al-Jazar in Palestine and Ali Bik al-Kabir in Egypt. Ali is Mehmet Ali, right? Right. Yes. Um, So the one in Libya, from the early 19th century is Yusuf Pasha. Have we talked about Yusuf Pasha? Maybe not. I don't um, think so. Yusuf Pasha allies with France against the Ottomans. So Yusuf Pasha is like one of these guys who breaks away from Ottoman rule uh, in Tripoli. Uh, he the ruling family, the Karamanli Pashas, and Yusuf Pasha has an army of around 10,000. Plus, if you include tribal allies and slaves, 40,000 more. They also have an active na- navy funded by tribute on European commercial ships passing the coast, which the Europeans don't like. They <laughs> call it piracy. Europe- Europeans don't like piracy, Dave. Apparently they, they find that, uh, you know, it's just not done. So Sweden and Denmark in 1798 actually paid 100,000 each tripoli in tribute but um when he jacked up the tribute price a bit in 1801 uh he got into conflict with a plucky new revolutionary power named the united states of america (laughs) and they fought a little war yusuf pasha versus this new republic called america Uh, it was called the first barbary war they fought from 1801 to 1805 and uh, they eventually uh, use of pasha had to come to terms and stop most of the piracy against american ships uh, in 1815 the europeans banned piracy as part of their treaty of vienna which we covered extensively uh, in our napoleon haiti and french revolutions uh uh segment a couple of years back you could go back and listen to that uh so and yusuf was not a modernizer so he didn't try to build a modern state or change the tax base or develop modern a weapon uh, you know modern army uh, he just kind of was holding on to power uh he racked up a french debt of 500,000 by 1830 remember Whoa. france yeah, France took over Algeria over exactly this issue. So they blockaded Yusuf Pasha in 1830. The British blockaded him in 1832. He tried to raise the money uh, by raising taxes, but that led to a revolt, and he ended up having to abdicate. That's when the Ottomans stepped in. So the Ottomans actually stepped in in the 1830s kind of to block the um, another round of French colonialism or British colonialism. <clears throat> the
1: the Karamanlis uh, that name sounded familiar so i i just took a look and they're turkish aha uh-huh. they're from anatolia originally right. so they're not libyan <laughs> right so uh, right. another another foreign interloper who's you know trying to rule
0: yeah So the Aulad Muhammad state in Fezzan, they get their revenue from camel caravans. There's a tribute in dates, gold, and slaves that they pay to the Ottoman. When the Ottomans finally take it over, the Ottomans do try to modernize, but the trade routes that they run as the Europeans are taking over Africa slowly, (laughs) and they have their own slave trade routes and so on, so um, that kind of dries up the Fezzan's trade options mm. uh, in the sanusi state sanusi is a kind of a religious movement as well so ali al sanusi was otherwise known as the grand sanusi he's from algeria he studies he's a religious scholar who studies in algeria morocco egypt and arabia he's early ni- early 19th mm-hmm. again so 1787 he's born dies in 1859 founds an order called the Sanusiya. so it's another one of these religious political Islamic movements, right? Mm-hmm. There's the Mahdi in Sudan, there's the Wahhabis in Arabia in the Arabian Peninsula. We've uh, talked about Amir Abdel in Algeria during our yeah. Scramble for Africa episode. There's also Abdel Karim's Rif Republic that we'll come back to in Morocco uh, 1920 to 1925. so that'll'll we'll get he'll get his due as well. But in the meantime, the Sanusi, uh, actually, um, Sanusi has these speeches where he says, beware the black snake, which he refers to as Ottoman. The black snake is Ottoman and European colonizers, um, Mm. which is interesting because there's a book called Ottoman, the black snake about the Ohio War against America. (laughs) And they call I think they called the American army the black snake. This is the Ohio indigenous people in. Is it from us watching their troops march? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Um, when Italy invaded the Sanusi, but when Italy invaded, like you're going to tell us about how Italy invaded in 1911, they fought uh, together. So the Sanusi and the Ottomans fought um, against Italy in 1911 together. Uh, but then <clears throat> they, they Sanusi just kept fighting even after the Ottoman Empire uh, gave up. Uh, Sanus. Uh, al-sanusi wrote 44 books one of them is called the awakening the sleeping to work with the hadith and the quran so it's uh kind of very religiously themed anti-imperialist kind of stuff uh sanusi lodges Ahmida describe or i think i think it's ahmed describes them as at once a mosque a school for children a residence for the leader the local leader and a guest house for guests and a storehouse for supplies. Uh, So these lodges were the centers of the movement and the centers of resistance until 1932, like I said, against Italy. So while uh, we have a growing, we have these various states, these three uh, centers of power in Libya, local centers of power, then we have a growing commercial penetration by England, and Italy from the period of French colonization of Algeria on from the 1830s to 1911 Italy goes from the fifth trading partner of the Libyan uh, states to Tripoli especially to the second and this is between, in the period between 1899 and 1902 this was in Ahmed's words engineered by specific plans on the part of Italy so there's the Ital- the two big players are the Italian consulate and the Banco di Roma uh, and the banco di roma itself built 12 italian language schools in italy uh, in libya from 1876 to 1911 and an italian sponsored press is founded in 1909 let's talk a little bit about the banco di roma uh, founded in 1880 by the vatican and funded with 5 million lire <laughs> uh, the vice president of the bank is romolo titoni the brother of the Italian Foreign Minister Tommaso, <coughs> 1903 to 1909, they bought 400,000 acres of land in Libya. They charged 9% on loans compared to 20 to 60% rates charged by local moneylenders. So they get into the lending business in a big way. They invested in various things: ice cream uh, shop, uh, wheat flour mills, a whole bunch of agricultural industry and maritime transportation. Here's an interesting story about the Banco di Roma. They In Benghazi, the bank branch made a deal to kind of um, rent. They bought sheep, then they rented the sheep back to the shepherds. And so the idea is you're now sh- herding the sheep on our behalf. The bank owns the sheep, and then you get a share of the profits. So the shepherds, they all came back en masse to the bank branch, and they said, oh, you know, we're so sorry. The... Um, the sheep all died in a disease, like a plague. And then that year, Amida writes, the markets of Cyrenaica were full of earless sheep. They brought the ears to the bank to oh, prove that proof. the sheep were dead. Yeah. <laughs> so the bank uh, apparently never made a profit, uh, which of course isn't never the point <laughs> with this kind of project. So um, European merchants have the extraterritorial deal that colonialists always go for, so they have their own courts, they're exempt from taxes, etc. And in 1908, fun fact, the Jewish territorial organization in Europe actually sent a delegation to Cyrenaica uh, uh, to study the feasibility of settling European Jews there. Uh, Mm. For more about what this organization was up to, (laughs) please (laughs) see our our previous episode (coughs) on the Uganda proposal during the Scramble for Africa. So... (laughs) <laughs> That's the background, the Libyan background, I should say.
1: Yeah, and my sources took a, a very different approach. So I have Otavio Bari for the for the war. Uh, I have my standards, uh, Macmillan and Clark. Of course, they're only interested in the domino aspect, yeah. so yeah. they don't <clears throat> they don't spend a lot of time on on the war. Uh, And then for the last part of the episode, I have uh, S.J. Wolf for Red Week, which is uh, separate but connected, certainly from an Italian perspective. So we never did an episode on Italy when we started the series. We did France and Britain, Germany, Austria and Russia. Uh, We didn't do one for Italy because we kind of fell into the same position as most of the contemporary (laughs) uh, observers who didn't take italy seriously uh they were virtually ignored at international conferences or or in a crisis uh, of which there have been many and there are more coming so italy was a great power only by courtesy and not in reality population was 35 million which is i guess substantial compared to austria-hungary's 50 but the italian population was declining Due to emigration, 873,000 left in 1913 alone. The railways were underdeveloped. The country was more agricultural and less industrial than all of the other major powers. They had the lowest military spending and they had deep, deep social divisions. uh, North and south, workers and employers and church and state. There were only 3 million voters, and most of these were in northern and central Italy. In the south, the overwhelming mass of the population consisted of landless peasants. Illiteracy ran as high as 90%.
0: Wait, Dave, why why is it a property qualification or a literacy qualification that excludes most of the voters? Uh, property or income. Okay.
1: Cool. All right. So the introduction of parliamentary democracy, uh, all it did was confirm the power of the southern landlords because they controlled the votes. So there were rotten boroughs all over the south. Uh, Anybody could become prime minister if they were willing to engage in enough corruption and intimidation. Party lines and political platforms didn't really matter. Because it was personal cliques who were, you know, bargaining for the price of their support. You know, I can deliver uh, eight deputies or I can deliver uh, six deputies. Uh, And it's very reminiscent of Britain in in the 18th and 19th centuries. So the Italian system was known as transformismo, transformism. Uh, Basically, the liberals and the conservatives took turns in power and and juggled their alliances and coalitions to make sure that they had enough uh, seats to retain a majority. And that means the parliament was more concerned about its inner workings than they were with economic and social conditions, which were changing rapidly. Uh, heavy industry was developing in Northern Italy, but there was a tariff war with France This was deliberate, a reprisal for the French seizing Tunisia in 1881, and it hurt Italy. It closed off the main market for southern Italy's exports, uh, mainly citrus fruits, and then combined that with a worldwide slump in agricultural prices, and the peasants were plunged into misery. And the southern question kept coming up. So we covered this uh, in the episode on the unification of Italy. So the North is more urban, uh, more industrial, the South, rural, agricultural, you know, very different uh, economic conditions. There were a few intellectuals who criticized the indifference of Parliament. There were isolated strikes, uh, rebellions. There was a strike by Sicilian sulfur workers in 1893-94. Of course, it was ruthlessly suppressed.
0: Yeah, I just want to mention I, I kind of got this book uh, called Teroni, all that has been done to ensure that the Italians of the South become Southerners. Uh, it's from 2011 by Pino Aprile, and it's all about basically the they, the this, the thesis of Aprile's book is that the South <clears throat> is some kind of internal colony. Uh, relative to the north, where you know tax, the the way that revenue is is drained, and the way that tax funds are dispersed, and the way that kind of the south is is deindustrialized and kept uh, kept from industrializing, because all the the idea is that the North is going to be industrial and the South is going to be not, <laughs> you know, and then the South is like exports people all over to uh, the U.S. and Canada yes. and elsewhere. So it's um, it's it's a it's a harsh like it's definitely not I don't I don't know how to evaluate it. I don't know enough about Italy, but it was definitely like a pretty devastating and shocking thesis to me. And apparently it was a big, um, it had a big impact in Italy in the Italian um, kind of discourse about about it, history. I, I buy it. Yeah.
1: Oh. I mean, infrastructure uh, spending will be in the yeah. north and the center and right. they ignore the south. Right. Um, I was in Italy in uh, the 1990s and went to a town called Matera. Uh, found out that they had gotten electricity in the 1980s
2: oh my god
0: (laughs) yep Yep. wow yeah okay well you know there it is and this this book they hate you know how i was you know how i had this thing for garibaldi if you go back and listen to the italy episodes uh, that we've done so far you'll see that i have this i have this uh kind of oh, Garibaldi, he's so cool, you know, he, he's Mm-mm. so courageous, uh, and, you know, he just <laughs> fought on, and he fought for the unification of Italy, and he vo- tried to volunteer to lead Lincoln's armies <laughs> against slavery. Uh, but this book, man, they hate Garibaldi, you know, and they think of Garibaldi as someone who basically led an occupying army um, to...
1: Well, to- and, and the North isn't all that keen on him either because the the plan for unifying Italy did not include (laughs) Naples and Sicily. Right. You know, we don't want those. They're just going to, you know, drag us down. So the Southern question basically consists of ignoring (laughs) Southern Italy. Meanwhile, in the North trade unions and cooperative organizations were spreading. There were quite a few anarchists and Republicans and uh, this is something that i guess i didn't know you you think of the future of italy with mussolini and fascism and don't realize that before world war one the left in italy was
0: much stronger oh yeah yeah so oh my goodness yeah of course Yeah, yeah they were they were the they were right up there with the with the germans like in terms of how strong the communists were but also yeah like you said the anarchist anarchist literature there's always italian anarchists uh, that we read (laughs) from this period yeah yeah so uh, both of these groups uh
1: up till this point were absolutely hostile to any contact with the monarchy but i guess from international example they began to realize that economic rights at least might be achieved more effectively by political representation so let's change our tactics uh you know uh, maybe fewer assassinations and we'll run for parliament so in 1892 the partito socialista italiano was founded and in 1895 the partito republicano italiano so socialists and republicans in parliament the Republicans got their support in the towns and the countryside of central Italy, especially in the Romagna, which had formerly been part of the papal states. And the socialists, of course, concentrated almost exclusively in the industrial cities. And that meant that they did exactly the same as the, you know, the liberals and the conservatives. They ignored the South, too. And they abandoned the peasants to the landlords. There was no... Uh, linking between northern workers and southern peasants. So wow. that was a major error. It, it meant that you had no truly national
0: movement. Well, this is another piece of evidence for the notion that the South was kind of an internal colony, right? Because yep. this is exactly how socialists behave towards the col- European socialists behave. Towards colonial populations. It's just like, well, we, we're going to keep exploiting them, obviously, but um, I think it was but, more ignoring them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not. Even we can't reach radar. them because they're illiterate. Yeah. And they're under the control of the landlords or whatever. Right. So, yeah.
1: Right. Yeah. You, you might want to break the control of the landlords, but that's only so you can get in there yourself. Yeah. Uh we covered the eighteen ninety six Italian invasion of Abyssinia, which ended in <laughs> How deceit. that work out for you. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. it it definitely resonated back in Italy. It discredited uh the imperialist nationalists. As I say, the left was stronger than the nationalist right. And and that you know, disaster and shameful defeat uh Only made it worse. Uh, 1898, though, was a significant year. The workers of Milan began to demonstrate. Uh, It's the usual stuff, right? Low wages, poor working conditions, and so on. Uh, But the demonstrations were significant enough that the authorities panicked and declared a state of siege. Troops under General Baccarus were sent in, and they killed over 100 people. And Prime Minister Antonio di Rudini was forced to resign. His successor, General Pelu, I always love it when the Prime Minister is a general, uh, he attempted to introduce laws restricting the freedom of association, freedom of the press, and the right to strike. So this was directly counter to the Constitution, and many saw it, probably correctly, as the prelude to an authoritarian coup. So the socialists and the Republicans were joined by the rest of the left and even the liberals, who were generally, you know, center-right, occasionally leaning center-left, but they all got together to oppose the measures. And they used obstructionist measures in parliament, so procedural stuff and filibustering and, you know, the, the usual And Pelou got impatient, so he tried to pass his laws by decree. And fortunately, the courts ruled these decrees illegal. And Pelou was uh, subsequently defeated in the election of 1900. But nobody forgot 1898. The workers remembered that, you know, the army had been used against them. But the conservatives came to believe that the liberals and the left would do this again, that they would ally with the extreme parties, the anarchists and the Republicans against them. And uh, Wolf in particular says this belief came into play in the 1920s when conservatives were prepared to abandon parliament for fascist rule. It was because of this memories of 1898. The liberals were also shocked out of their complacency and realized that they couldn't uh, continue to get their turn to govern unless they had a broader base of support. So the key figure of the period is Giovanni Giolitti. Giolitti was Prime Minister five times between 1892 and 1921, and he was a master of the art of transformismo, uh, you know, forming or creating centrist coalitions um, moving between the center-right and the center-left to attract more support or to steal the thunder of the conservatives or of, you know, the radicals. Uh, Right-wing critics like Luigi Albertini considered him a socialist because he courted socialist and leftist votes in exchange for support. Meanwhile, left-wing critics like Gaetano uh, Salvamini accused him of being a corrupt politician and of winning elections with the support of criminals. And the interesting thing is they're
0: both right. Yeah, Pretty- I mean, is this is this like, this is like reminds me of what Mark said about Bismarck, right? It's like this kind of cleverness that in the long term is undermining the whole system. It seems to me, yes. I don't know, Does it is that, is, that, is that how it seems to you too?
1: Well, That's it's pretty true. rare that you have a right wing critic and a left wing critic
0: both being <laughs> correct in their <laughs> depiction of a centrist politician. But if you're doing like anything to stay in power and moving constantly from coalition to coalition, you're not gonna be a Yeah, you to... put
1: you're putting your political tactics
0: over yeah. your program. Yeah, exactly. Okay,
1: so Giolitti's a controversial figure and I think he's still being you know debated or evaluated because he he did do some good things he passed a wide range of progressive social reforms uh he improved the living standards of ordinary italians with uh several government interventions in in social welfare so he put tariffs in place there were subsidies um but he also nationalized the private telephone and and railroad operators and lowered the cost for the consumers. Um, Part of his success, he was ruling at a time when the European economic boom, the decade before the war, uh, helped. Prosperity returned, tensions diminished. That prosperity, of course, was limited to the north. Uh, As you say, Giolitti continued to use corruption and intimidation in the south, um, all the while encouraging socialists and refusing to intervene in labor disputes like the general strike of 1904. But when he got into trouble, Giolitti was perfectly prepared to resign, so that he could come back stronger later, when the
0: time. Oh, was that's about. a that's a. Tried and true parliamentary tactic. Yep. Uh, the old threat to resign. Yeah. When it gets hot in the kitchen, go outside.
1: <laughs> Come back when things cool down. Uh, but he could also turn to the right and appeal for support from the forces of order, especially the Catholics, uh, and then calling a general election. Oh, the the religion aspect. Uh, the Pope is still in the Vatican and refuses to recognize the Italian government, the king and the parliament, because they stole his land. So if you are a true Catholic and support the Pope, then you don't like the Italian government either. So it's an interesting situation. Uh, Not resolved until Mussolini. But we'll get to that. Uh, By 1910, uh, Giolitti was doing well. His tactics were successful. Uh, there were general strikes called by the uh, the maximalists. These are the extreme socialists. 1904, six, seven, and eleven, and uh, they failed because I guess enough of the workers had some faith that you know Giolitti's liberals could deliver. Uh, and by 1910, many thought that his his system could be permanent. Uh, conservatives couldn't you know wean away enough support from the center uh catholics seemed to be reconciling themselves to secular rule and socialists you know they had to admit that concrete social reforms had been achieved and uh, yet 3 years later uh Giolitti's whole system collapsed uh there there was continued opposition to him many 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 people uh criticized and complained about political corruption. Uh, socialist and later anti-fascist uh, Gaetano Salvamini wrote a ferocious pamphlet. He personified Giulitti as the minister of the underworld. And Giulitti was also being attacked from the right, the small but loud nationalist movement, uh, criticized him for being pedestrian and materialist. His government was, you know, not reaching for the heights. They demanded a greater imperialist role for Italy. Uh, glory, right? The Republicans actually expelled members of their own party who seemed to be in danger of being seduced by Giulietti. And then there were the maximists, maximalist socialists, the most extreme, uh, urged on by a young demagogue named Benito Mussolini, <laughs> who wrote for the uh, socialist... Uh, newspaper magazine uh, Avanti forward and the maximalists seized control of the socialist Congress in 1912 at Reggio Emilia and they expelled the reformist
0: leaders. Oh, can I pause Um, Reggio Emilia? If you're like, uh, if you have small children or if you're in education, Reggio Emilia is like the name of a type of pedagogy for, um, kindergarten basically so like oh. you can run your kindergarten according to the reggio emilia principles which is like great calm and you have different stations and um a little bit like montessori but um <laughs> so there's okay. all these there's, so anyway that's I interesting to see that, that mussolini <laughs> mussolini got his start there but mussolini was not mussolini when he was doing this right no like, he was a is, fiery socialist okay. This is not Mussoliniism. This is just uh, socialism by a guy who happens to (laughs) later become, (laughs) invent fascism. So, yeah. Very, yeah. Yeah. Even within the trade
1: union movement, (laughs) there was a split. So, the uh, the CGL, Confederazione Generale del Lavoro, so the General Confederation of Workers, uh, there was a breakaway by the USI, the Unione sindicale Italiano. Mm. Uh, and they had about 200,000 members, including the uh independent and extreme uh railwaymen's union. So you really had like three labor movements because the rail, railwaymen wouldn't, you know, take orders from anybody. So Giolitti uh he he's got criticism from the left and the right and he's got a maneuver between them and he thought that he he too thought that he could perpetuate his control and the means was going to be two very spectacular measures one would be the extension of universal suffrage and the other would be the invasion of tripoli Uh. (laughs) so universal suffrage for the left And then that would allow them, or hopefully, you know, make them tolerate my imperialist adventure. And, you know, then reverse it for the right, you know, you'll tolerate universal suffrage because I'm giving you the invasion of Tripoli. Uh, Like Morocco, uh, Tripoli was one of those places that was expected to, you know, fall to the... uh, the nearest imperialist power. So Morocco was basically French. Everybody knew that the French would take it eventually. And so Tripoli was sort of, you know, it had a little reserved sign on it (laughs) for when Italy. Yeah, back as far as 1878 at the Congress of Berlin, uh, Bismarck and Salisbury, the the British uh, prime minister, they both referred to Tripoli as, you know, eventually Italian. And the Italians had been collecting promises over the years. Uh, In 1902, the French signed a secret agreement. Uh, They stated that Morocco would go to France and that Italy could have a free hand in Libya. You hear that expression a lot, right? The free hand. And the British agreed that uh, in the same year that any alteration in the status of Libya would be in conformity with Italian interests. Even Russia in 1909 acknowledged the special Italian interest in Libya. Of course, what they wanted in return was Italian support for their plan to gain access to the Straits, uh, to Constantinople. But basically, everybody agrees, Tripoli will will, will go to Italy. Uh, When the French took over Tunisia in 1881, though, the Italians got nervous. They had uh, started their empire with Eritrea and Somaliland, but were defeated uh, by the Ethiopians in 1896. And somehow this disaster, or maybe you just call it a setback, uh, the idea of Tripoli remained alive, even though Italy had <laughs> you know, very few of the main motives of the other imperialist powers. They weren't industrialized enough to need overseas markets for their goods. And they weren't wealthy enough to, to need colonial investments, uh, colonial outlets for, for investment of capital. So, you know, the whole economic or financial reasons for imperialism, they, they didn't apply. Uh, what they did have was a king, Victor Emmanuel III, uh, who pretty much left his ministers alone. And the various ministries also didn't communicate with each other very well. I found this astonishing. The Italian army general staff uh, hadn't read the exact terms of the Triple Alliance. (laughs) Uh, Division of Labour? I (laughs) don't know. I don't know. Militarily, Italy was weak. The army was in the north to defend against France or Austria. And the Navy openly admitted that they couldn't protect the entire coastline or even just Italian ports. I mean, you look at a map and realize, okay, Italy does have a lot of coast to to cover. But, you know, still. So uh, I found this quote, uh, unbreakable faithfulness to the Triple Alliance, (laughs) sincere friendship for England and France and cordial relations with the other powers always remain the basis of our foreign policy
0: so, so that's the that's the uh that's the foreign policy of a week <laughs> let's weak not power. offend anybody <laughs> i don't think the kaiser wilhelm is talking like that exactly no <laughs> right. no um but but the other uh, the how did they beat the ottomans then i mean i guess the only other power that's in worse shape is the ottomans right? <laughs> Uh, yeah, and and then
1: there's the uh, the timing, right? Yeah. So if you're a, an Italian nationalist or an imperialist, you really don't have the economic arguments. Uh, so you have to use a mixture of other ones. So uh, strategic arguments: Italy needs to guarantee her security in the Mediterranean because <laughs> Tripoli's a big threat to us. I, I I don't even know what that is, uh, but <laughs> it it's the uh, it's the usual arguments that really hold sway. Like the Germans, many Italians dream of being respected, and then you have the social Darwinists who ignore the verdict of Adowa uh, <laughs> and say that okay, the French are decadent. Uh, the Austrians are soft, and we Italians were tough. So by social
0: Darwinist logic, you know. And we, presumably they're looking back to ancient Rome or something to, to be pretty,
1: uh, pretty Yeah, tough, fairly often, yeah. fairly often. And some, uh, including Antonio Labriola, uh, find a way to use an economic argument. So we have a large surplus of agricultural population, especially in the south, and these people are emigrating. Right. Why not give them a nearby colony to go to a place where they can acquire land, uh still enjoy Italian culture and the astonishing thing is Labriola, uh, born in eighteen sixty one was a Marxist theoretician and philosopher. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He never joined a party, but he had a lot of influence on Benedetto Croce, the founder of the Liberal Party, and Antonio Gramsci and Amadeo Bordiga. If you don't know those names, they were the leaders of the Italian Communist
0: Party. And you will know those names. You will know Gramsci. Gramsci is an interesting one for me, Dave, because Gramsci is... um Everything I've ever read by Gramsci, which is essays and he's someone who's quoted a lot Mm -hmm. and I've really liked it. But then it's impossible to get into because most of his life he was in prison and everything that he's written is called prison notebooks, prison notebooks, volume one, prison notebooks, volume two, all the way to I don't know how many. So you can't ever find anything, you know, it's it's one of the most. You know, it's one of the saddest stories in the sense that he doesn't have, you know, Lenin, you you can look up like what is to be done or state yeah. and revolution or imperialism. Right. But Gramsci, everything is prison notebooks. Uh, anyway, I'll get in there. I'll get in there and I'll deliver uh, <laughs> to, to you, to you listeners, not to worry. And uh, Labriola had influence on uh, another guy that you might have heard of, uh, Leon Trotsky. You guys are going to hear a lot about Trotsky because he's, yes. he's my main source for the Balkan Wars, which are coming up. So, Because yeah, he was there. Uh,
1: so Labriola's approach to Marxist theory was more open-ended uh, than, you know, some of the theorists we've heard of, uh, Kautsky. Your favorite. (laughs)
0: Lenin.
1: Yeah, (laughs) vile
0: opportunist Kotsky.
1: (laughs) So Labriola saw Marxism not as a final, self-sufficient schematization of history, but rather as a collection of pointers to help in the understanding of human uh, affairs. So if a Marxist like Labriola can subscribe to the idea of Tripoli, who's going to be immune disaster. disaster but there were some these anti-imperialists uh who doubted that the land in tripoli was suitable for cultivation uh and they argued that any money you're going to devote to colonizing such a poor place economically poor would be better used to develop southern italy which <laughs> only which is happened an after
0: world war ii yeah let's use our inner right? colony well, because it's also like um, it's also like the British always say we go to poor countries and develop them through imperialism. But this is kind of an admission where you don't want to colonize poor countries. You want to colonize rich countries, um, and colonizing <laughs> poor countries isn't uh, you know, isn't as lucrative. So. Right. Yeah. Which is why I think
1: many of the economic arguments for imperialism are uh, often secondary to yeah. the. The prestige and the social Darwinist stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so these nationalists and imperialists, they're a minority, but even Giolitti has to deal with them. Yeah. Uh, and here, even a lot of the liberals and some of the radicals and, and Republicans are interested in acquiring Tripoli, so it seems like a good idea. There were links between the iron and steel industry and the newly created Nationalist Party. Uh, I don't know if the links were before or after Tripoli. I'm not 100% sure. But as you say, the Banco di Roma was already involved in their financial schemes in Tripoli. Uh, They are complaining about resistance and hostility uh, of the Turkish authorities who are putting impediments in our way. Uh, The Young Turks Revolution of 1908 works in two ways. So first of all, it increases the Turkish hostility to foreign enterprises in Tripoli and especially the Italians because the Turks can tell, uh, don't mess with British commercial enterprises because that will end badly. But we can afford to tick off the Italians because, well, a they're more directly involved, and b they're weaker than the other foreign powers. Right, so,
0: everybody's looking for a for an opponent that they can take on. <laughs> yes, Not, you don't want to bite off more than you can chew here. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: Uh, in his memoirs, and again, again memoirs, hmm. caution. Giolitti said that the decisive factor when it came to timing the Italian invasion was the Agadir crisis. The great powers were facing off, so no one would be in a position to effectively oppose Italy. Oddly enough, the countries most likely to interfere were Italy's allies. Germany, uh, particularly, was becoming friendlier with the Turks. And Austria-Hungary did not want to see Turkey fall apart because of the chaos it might cause in the Balkans. But the Turks were torn by internal divisions because of the Young Turks Revolution, and they were already fighting rebellions in Albania and Yemen. So the Turks are distracted and weak. All the other Europeans are busy. Uh, the French are taking Morocco, so it's time for us to cash in our free hand. And Giulidi, of course, had the domestic reasons that I mentioned. So he had pledged to introduce uh, wider male suffrage. He did in 1912. Uh, and believe that the conservatives and nationalists would be more likely to accept it if his bill was accompanied by vigorous international and colonial policy. And then this works in reverse, right? The liberals and the left will be more likely to uh, resign themselves to a foreign adventure as long as they're getting this important democratic reform.
0: Yeah, so in terms of the grassroots nationalism... Timothy Child's uh, book, Italo-Turkish Diplomacy in the War of Libya, 1911 to 1912. He has a chapter two called To Be Malthusian is Vile. And I thought, what on earth is this? Because <laughs> I also think to be Malthusian is vile. Okay. So what is this? I knew it had to be a quote. I knew this isn't Timothy Child speaking. So I, I scanned the chapter and eventually I found it. And it's a quote from the founder of the Italian Nationalist Association, Enrico Corradini. And Enrico Corradini, uh, uh, he's, he goes to Tripoli. And the first congress of the Italian Nationalist Association is December 1910. So this is a grassroots uh, imperialism that's coming up, that's bubbling up at exactly this time and he he thinks the italian south is overpopulated again overpopulation being in the service of a kind of reactionary mm-hmm. argument so he says listen he goes to tripoli for two months he comes back and he writes a piece where he says it is necessary because of the southern over overpopulation it is necessary either to conquer colonies or to emigrate or to become Malthusians. So in his mind, Malthusian is trying to limit the number of births, and he says, but to become Malthusian is vile, to immigrate is servile, and only the conquest of colonies is worthy of a free and noble people. So that's uh, the kind of sentiment that Giolitti is working with, and then the nationalists like this, they don't want the Italians to go. Uh, Italians are leaving, right, by the hundreds of thousands, even by the million. Uh, at this time the end of the 19th century all most of all of them are going to the u.s some are going to the, canada and northern europe but they want these nationalists want them to go to an italian colony in africa where they can become a settler colonial population that's like you know like france and algeria their their model is france and algeria their model is um you know the british of course everywhere the germans are doing it right now at this time in um namibia right in, yeah. in east africa west africa so so the italians <laughs> want to want a piece of this and they and it's not like just the state it's it's these kind of grassroots uh groups i don't know how grassroots it is but it's you know definitely <laughs> so, nationalist the press the associations yeah. so reverse economic arguments yeah exactly exactly
1: whereas the government continued to maintain that the main reason for occupying tripoli was in fact economic we have to overcome the obstacles faced by italian commerce and industry in libya but <laughs> it's pretty it's pretty clear that it's the moroccan crisis the second moroccan crisis that that prompted them to move and and Giolidi has another thought too if any other power should seize tripoli before italy did it it would be the end of his of his government it, the, the humiliation would produce a crisis and and it, you know the liberals would fall so we have to, we have to that we, we just have to so foreign minister san giuliano happened to be staying at the same hotel as the deputy chief of naval staff and they discussed the logistics of an invasion how, how would we do this uh, san giuliano then recommended to the prime minister that uh, autumn or spring would be best and they chose september but they didn't tell the army until the last moment. <laughs> uh, September 17th, giulidi ordered the preparations for the invasion to be hurried up. And on the 24th, the foreign affairs minister, uh, San Giuliano, sent Turkey a warning note. I'm sure this is in Child's book. Uh, highlighting the difficulties caused by Turkish officials and... Um, Upset at the loads of weapons arriving from Constantinople for distribution among the local people. Oh, yeah. I've I've got a
0: little bit about that.
1: Okay. Turkey dismissed the accusations, uh, and on September 28th, the Italians issued their ultimatum. Turkey should abstain from resisting Italian forces, which would be arriving to restore order. (laughs) And the following day, the Turkish reply was evasive, so Italy went ahead and declared war. Now, there's a problem. The troops weren't ready. Uh, Italy didn't want to tip off their plans to the rest of Europe, so they hadn't moved uh, any of their army corps from the north to a port where they could be embarked for Libya. So what they did was rather than move one of their army corps, they created a new one. Uh, So that meant the Navy had to start the fighting on their own. This is the weirdest invasion I've ever heard of, (laughs) right? Declare war and then start planning how you're going to, oh, man. Uh, So the Navy bombarded uh, forts in Tripoli and landed 1,700 sailors uh, to occupy the town. And then they had to wait until October 11 for the army soldiers to arrive. Uh, they did eventually. Thirty-four thousand soldiers, uh, eight infantry regiments, and two crack Bersaglieri regiments. One contingent landed at Tripoli. Two others landed at Derna in Cyrenaica, and at Benghazi. And the, the navy, meanwhile, had also occupied uh, Tobruk. So, using
0: the um, the book uh, by uh, the Osprey book by Gabriele Esposito, the According to that book, the Turks at this point have uh, 8,000. They have a garrison of 8,000 on paper. (laughs) <laughs> which is not necessarily effective uh, military power, but they have 8,000 compared to the Italians who are sending 34,000 in this initial invasion. And they all of their ships, Navy-wise, are completely obsolete. So the garrison, wisely, I guess, retreats immediately. They retreat inland uh, and allow the Italians to occupy Tripoli e on October 5th. Um, so here's the interesting story of these rifles. Um, One. So there were it's true. So the Italians were worried about a shipment of rifles to Libya just before their invasion plan. And just to quote Timothy Childs here, it cannot have been entirely coincidental that the Ottoman government on the 21st of September dispatched 20,000 Mauser rifles to Tripoli on the steamer Dima along with two million cartridges. The vessel arrived at Tripoli on 25th of September, despite the rather ineffectual efforts of the Italian Navy to prevent its arrival, and succeeded in unloading its cargo. From the Ottoman point of view, the DERN's cargo, the DIMA's cargo, sorry, was too little too late. But from the Italian point of view, the fact that it arrived at all was most unfortunate, for it guaranteed that instead of being opposed only by the weak Ottoman garrison in Libya, Italy would now also have to deal with armed Arab tribesmen, a complication that was to prove extremely vexatious and whose ramifications were to extend far beyond the formal conclusion of the Italo-Turkish War in October 1912. So like I was saying, the, this is a very short invasion and it gets the Italians uh, the resolution that they like but then that leads to 20 years of uh war for them <laughs> uh the, the sanusi vexatious i like that vexatious yeah extremely vexatious um the sanusi irregulars were very motivated very good at guerrilla tactics and the, the resistance forces total are around 20,000 uh for over this period so and their young turks uh send a, a number of officers who are trained in modern warfare to uh, to to basically become the instructors advisors for these Sanusi uh, irregulars. Um, the Italians have moved into most all of the major towns by the 19th of October. It's just that the towns are not all that important is part of the problem. Well, they're important
1: for claiming that you <laughs> that you yeah. won, right? You have to yeah. you have to announce we captured this place. Yeah, that, that's the easy part. Uh, to penetrate inland while still occupying the coastal cities, that's going to be a little tougher. Uh, General Caneva was not very energetic, and he failed to find an effective policy for dealing with the local population. Uh, Barry says that Italy was not only an ineffective military power, but also an inexperienced colonial power. Uh, The Turks, up until now, had mostly been hated as oppressors by the Arab population. Uh, Now they just changed oppressors and continued, so they organized guerrilla war. Uh, The Italians, in their plan, really failed to consider the Arab leaders. Uh, They didn't study any... History of the Ottoman occupation, which maybe they should have. Uh, and Barry says, in short, the the Italians failed to bribe Arab leaders with gifts, with opportunities, or with honors. They they might have been able to win them over, you know.
0: Right. Well, yeah. It, I mean, like, if you contrast the different colonial approaches, right? You have the British, it, who are always trying to bribe, buy off, pension off the relevant leaders. You have the French who are trying to assimilate everybody and bring them into France and make them French somehow, uh, which doesn't generally work as well. And then you have the Germans who are just trying to kill everybody and tell everyone that they're trying to kill everybody, which works the least of all. And it seems like the Italians didn't quite settle on on, uh, which they were going to go with, but probably the German approach was uh, where they were headed without the industrial power to right. pull it off, maybe. Right. I, I
1: agree with you. I think that they were using their social Darwinist brain yeah. and uh, thinking we'll, we'll just impose our will <laughs> without the means yeah. to do it. Meanwhile, Italian officers and soldiers in Tripoli itself were being assassinated in alarming numbers. <laughs> Uh, On October 23rd, Italian soldiers were ambushed at the oasis of Shara Shat. The Bersaglieri launched a counterattack but fell into a trap. They were attacked from behind and in eight hours of fighting, the Italians lost 500 men.
0: Yeah, so that's a major attack uh, by the Ottomans there. That's probably the biggest setback uh, that Italy has uh, in this war of conquest. Um, the Italians managed to rally and get their position back um, and then they committed a gigantic massacre in revenge uh, for this. And then Italy also in that process, uh, after that setback at Shara shot, uh, they send another 55,000 troops. So this is becoming big. It's becoming expensive. And uh, and it's happening pretty fast. So in November 1st, uh, Italy does the first, the world's first aerial bombing. Dave, congratulations to Italy on that one. Ain um, Zara Oasis south of Tripoli, and Italy occupies this oasis on December 4th and destroys the camp. Um, there are some other major attacks by the Ottomans that are repulsed successfully by the Italians on January 28th and March 13th. Uh, The Italian warships start kind of the Italians kind of generalize the war against the Ottomans. So they're trying Mm -hmm. to get a surrender. So they destroy the telegraph cables connecting the Imbros and Lemnos Islands to Turkey in April. They occupy the Dodecanese Islands on May 5th. So they're really trying to widen the war so the Ottomans will give them Libya. So in July, on July 12th, uh, they begin a peace process in Switzerland and Lausanne. Uh, Italy keeps kind of attacking other Ottoman targets. And eventually the Ottomans sign the Treaty of Lausanne uh, October 18th, 1912. So again, congratulations um, to Italy for that. Uh, now you get to fight a war in uh, Libya for the next 20 years. And October... <laughs> But also, on October 18th, as you're, I know we're going to get into a little bit more, uh, the Balkan League of Greece, Serbia, Montenegro, and Bulgaria declare war on the Ottoman Empire starting the first Balkan War. So it's just, this is the real domino, the dominoes fall yeah. one at a time. But the Italians were encouraged by this, you know,
1: now the uh, the Turks are in trouble. Be, before that all of the uh, vexations <laughs> that they were <laughs> yes. experiencing in in Libya were encouraging the anti-imperialists back in Italy who are now criticizing you know the invasion and the war and its handling and all of that stuff but the the Turks are also encouraged they're you know not convinced that the game is lost maybe they can involve the great powers maybe they can have a conference uh, and, and maybe peace can be restored. And if that happens, maybe the status
0: quo. Uh, right. Because if they can hold on, if they can prove to Italy that they can't hold Libya, uh, and and if they can keep their Arab tribal force burning, then right. maybe the Italians would have to back off.
1: Right. Yeah. So to prevent that, Giolitti announced the annexation of Tripoli on November 5th. So he's trying to present the rest of Europe with a fait accompli. Uh, his opponents argued this is only going to stiffen Turkish resistance. You're going to make it impossible for them to, to give in or to surrender. Yeah. And for the Turks, this, this war is actually kind of cheap. It's yeah. mainly locally organized guerrilla warfare. We supply some, some rifles and ammunition and away they go.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, public opinion in Europe was fairly unanimous. The German Reichstag called the invasion an act of piracy. And and this is Italy's ally. <laughs> the uh, international press reported the increasingly brutal methods being used to put down the widespread resistance. The uh, Socialist International, the Second International, condemned Italy. But in all of this there's very little sympathy for the turks or for the people in libya because they're widely considered um well to use the the contemporary terms uh backwards brutal and desperately in need of civilization
0: so yeah. so oh, let me just say about the military analysis because child's uh, has an interesting he quotes somebody named romano i don't know whether romano i think romano was writing at the time i think romano is some kind of journalist um, and he says, you know, the Ottomans know that they actually, you know, a, a long guerrilla war would be great, but they can't do it. Um, they can't. They they have divisions among their high command uh, officers and men are they're unable to pay them regularly. They don't have enough <laughs> supplies and reinforcements. They don't have good camp hygiene or medical uh, care and. Also the Arab tribes are also exhausted. So here's what Romano says at the time. I I gather Romano's some kind of Italian imperialist journalist, but I'll have to try to figure that out after the fact. Romano writes and quoted by Childs The Bedouin community was not adapted to sustain a long and tenacious struggle. War was a natural moment of their economic existence, but that's a war of raids. To wage a long war for a distant victory was almost inconceivable. After some months they began to feel the call of other activities, the harvest, the pasture, and even more indispensable moments of their existence. So, Hmm. that's kind of like what it looks like on their side. And and they
1: would have been mostly unaware i think of the uh, the movement of the great powers exactly. <clears throat> behind the scenes uh, nobody wants to intervene to stop italy in yes. fact they're highly critical of the italians on the other hand eh, you know colonization is good for the colonized people so <laughs> you know this will be better the italians will be better than the turks uh, there's also the, diplom- the diplomatic angle. So Macmillan says that both alliances, the the Triple Alliance and the Entente, uh, they both feared to drive Italy to the other side, which is interesting because isn't Italy already on one side? It, it's pretty clear that Britain and France know Italy's not fully committed yeah. to the Triple Alliance. But if we make a big stink over Tripoli, that might drive them, you know, to really support Germany and Austria. Meanwhile, Germany and Austria don't want to be too critical because Italy might, you know, leave the Triple Alliance and and make nice with the Entente. Uh, British Foreign Minister Gray had a conversation with the Italian ambassador and Gray expressed the hope that Italy would so conduct affairs that the consequences might be as little far reaching and embarrassing as possible. (laughs) <laughs>
0: isn't that nice isn't, isn't that a general <laughs> principle <laughs> does yeah. anyone want does anyone want far reaching and embarrassing consequences yeah but
1: i mean you can tell exactly what he means right like yeah. not not too many massacres if if at all possible uh, the ambassador asked what britain would do and gray replied that he was speaking from the point of view of non intervention so there you go green light from britain there was trouble with France, though. Uh, over the span of a few days, an Italian destroyer stopped and searched three French ships carrying Turkish armaments and troops. So that's interesting. Uh, Caillaux's government, that had been through the Agadir crisis, had already fallen. French governments, right? They have a shelf life of six months to a year. The new French leader was Raymond Poincaré, uh, who we will see again. He's uh, more of a hardliner uh, and not so conciliatory. Uh, Giolitti decided (laughs) to be nice, uh, and he released the French ships. And the case ended up in the Hague Tribunal, which ruled that Italy was allowed to search the ships, but not to detain them, which is a very odd judgment. (laughs) You can stop us, you can search us, but then you have to let us go. Interesting. Uh, meanwhile, Italy's ally, Austria-Hungary, was making plans to attack her. Conrad <laughs> uh, von Hotzendorf, who you know generally votes for war seven days a week, uh, <laughs> thought that the moment was right. You know, while the Italians are occupied in Tripoli, we could attack them. Uh, Germany, though, was actually helpful to Italy. They asked the other powers to allow Italy to extend hostilities into the Aegean and even the Dardanelles. And that's a pretty sensitive area. Even Russia agreed to that. And that's what the Italian Navy did in 1912. As you say, they're trying to force the Turks to give in and concede. And since they can't do it in Libya, they'll do it elsewhere. So they blockaded the Turkish coast of the Red Sea. They sank Turkish ships at Beirut and they bombarded Turkish forts in the Dardanelles. They also occupied 13 islands, most of them in the Aegean, and the island of Rhodes, pretty significant uh, place. Uh, now they can interrupt maritime communications between Constantinople and Tripoli, but that wasn't enough to end the war. Turkey at this point has basically written off Tripolitania, and Cyrenaica. Uh, They don't think they're going to get them back. But they're not prepared to accept Italian sovereignty over them. As you say, in, in July of 1912, they agreed to open negotiations, started in Switzerland. But after months of talks, the whole situation changed with the Balkan War. So Turkey realizes they have their hands full with that. And that means they're going to give in. They're going to cede Libya. Signed the treaty October 15th. And this weird little paragraph in the treaty gave Italy the right to occupy the islands that they held until Turkish officials and soldiers had finally left Tripoli. It's like some kind of guarantee, right? In fact, the Italians simply prolonged their occupation, uh, kept the islands, and then World War I began. <laughs> right. uh, so Italy kept them. And after the war, Italian possession of the islands was confirmed. The whole invasion was extremely costly for Italy. In, in financial terms, it created a huge budget deficit. They lost uh, 8,000 men killed and wounded in the first year. I I don't have the numbers for the whole war. I don't even know if they exist.
0: Yeah, there are really low numbers for Libyans uh, by Esposito. He says 14,000 Libyans killed in combat and 10,000 more in basically massacres, reprisals, etc. The financial cost to Italy, 1.3 billion lira, which is four times what they thought it would cost. And it's said to have set back domestic development by 10 years. Um, In October 1912, the Italian army controlled basically seven coastal enclaves. The largest one was extending maximum 15 kilometers inland. But Timothy Childs has an estimate from an Italian. He says the Italian Lobello... Estimates Estimated in 1925 that Cyrenaica had lost between 1911 and 1914, 180,000 out of 300,000 inhabitants from all causes. So that's like in the realm of two thirds of the population, which is what a lot of estimates are for the whole kind of dep- depopulation and genocide, but over the entire 20 20- plus years yeah it depends on what you know what dates you
1: choose as to to bracket your your estimate so barry says that uh resistance continued into the 1920s and mussolini effectively ended it by killing
0: 50,000 libyans yeah and that's probably an underestimation ahmadi ahmida sorry ali abdul latif ahmida in the genocide for genocide in libya book he says Basically, the genocide in eastern Libya took place between 1929 and 1934, resulted in the loss of 83,000 Libyan citizens as the population declined from 225,000 to 142,000. Some 110,000 civilians were forced to march from their homes to the harsh desert, so same as the Germans did, Right and then were interned in horrific concentration camps between 60 to 70,000 mostly rural people, including men, women, elderly and children, and their 600,000 animals were starved and died of diseases. This was the result of 20 year anti-colonial resistance and represented genocide based on a racist colonial plan to crush local resistance and settle poor Italian peasants in the colony. The Italian state suppressed news about the genocide. Evidence was destroyed. The remaining files on the concentration camps were hard to find, even after the end of fascism in Italy in 1943. So we will get back to all of this uh, long guerrilla war in the interwar period. We'll talk about Gasser Buhadi in the south of Sirte, where the Italians had a huge defeat in 1915. We'll talk about the Sanusi guerrilla movement and lots more. I promise. <laughs> okay.
1: Well, Ottoman rule had been unpopular. But uh, relatively mild and, by comparison, enlightened. Under the Italians, Libya went went backward. Uh, yeah. Regional and tribal rivalries persisted. Well, they persisted until the present day, really. Yeah. Uh, and it, Libya never really came together as a country. Yeah. Artificial borders and uh, grouping together people that didn't want to and had never been. Uh, yeah one group the invasion uh featured some new military technique uh technology as you pointed out first bombardment for the air the italians used uh aircraft for reconnaissance for signaling the locations of enemy positions so that they could be shelled by artillery or by naval vessels they dropped propaganda leaflets and they had uh, dirigibles that dropped bombs uh airplanes could drop bombs but it was very awkward for a pilot to steer the plane with a bomb between his hands uh, between his knees rather and then set the fuse so uh you know the the bombs are not attached to the undercarriage so that they can be released if you've seen aircraft of this era takeoff can be a little bumpy you don't want to try that with a bomb strapped to the bottom of it um, the Italians also used military searchlights to make night attacks uh, by the Arabs much more costly. And I was surprised this wasn't entirely new. The British had used searchlights at Alexandria in 1882. Interesting. Huh. Uh, Giolitti's master plan backfired. His nice little imperialist war did uh, steal the thunder from right-wing nationalists, but it was uh, ruinously expensive. And it was also so blatantly imperialistic that it just you know provided a rallying cry for all of the left parties uh, who agreed on anti-militarism. Hmm. And the granting of universal suffrage, uh, which created many more new Catholic voters, didn't translate into electoral victory. Despite having Catholic support, at least in the short term, the liberals slipped from 382 to 310 deputies, while the socialists increased from 41 to 79, and the anti-clerical constitutional radicals from 45 to 73. And these uh, radicals were angry because Giolitti had made an agreement with the Catholics, their enemies. So they withdrew their support, and Giolitti's government fell to be replaced by a right wing liberal coalition under antonio salandra and All of this came uh, created a pretty explosive situation in Italy, which I thought we would come back to later and then I was doing research on the Red Week and decided it fit it fit right here um, on a on a much larger scale uh Justin's domino. Analogy, uh, he has people who agree with him. Clark says that Italy broke the ice. In effect, they inspired or at least facilitated the outbreak of the Balkan War. And the Kaiser had actually seen it all coming. The partition of the Turkish Empire, more trouble in the Balkans. And Italy was the one that started the ball rolling. They they also changed, in a sense, the the orientation of 19th century European diplomacy, the preservation of the Ottoman Empire was no longer a priority. Uh, British policy had changed the most. The, rather than propping up the Turks, they were just going to kind of let them go. The sick man of Europe was in critical condition.
0: Well it's yeah. I'm starting to see this all, especially after researching this episode and the way that it led exactly to the Balkan War, the same day, right? Mm-hmm. Like <laughs> they signed the treaty and then the Balkan War starts. And it's like the for me, it's like the scramble for Africa coming to the Ottoman Empire, and then you're scramble, you're doing a scramble in. Europe now because the Ottoman Empire extends into Europe and when you Europe is scrambling for Territories inside of Europe. It's gonna explode So it's it's like that whole quest to colonize every inch of land in the world Leads inevitably to conflicts between these powers and closer and closer to where they live
1: Interesting So you see the Ottoman Empire is just some real estate that that just came on the market?
0: Yeah, yeah. It's just, it's just hitting me that way because you know, out Morocco leads to leads to um Libya, which leads to the Balkans now.
1: Hmm. Okay.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, back to Italy. Uh the new Prime Minister, Salandra, after Giolitti's fall. Uh, Salandra had been a minister in General Pelou's authoritarian reactionary government in eighteen ninety eight which means that everybody on the left knows who he is. And the right wing, uh, especially the imperialists, their their appetite for colonial expansion hasn't been sated. On the contrary, they're hungry for more. Uh, And on the left, this anti-militarist theme united the revolutionary groups who had been pretty much split since 1898. You also have a few uh, important figures who, who came back to Italy. Veteran anarchist leader Errico Malatesta. Oh, came that's back. a big one. Yeah. He is a big name. Yeah. Uh, came back in 1913. And so did the revolutionary syndicalist Alceste de Ambris. The uh, USI, this is the Syndicalist Union, believed that a general strike could overthrow the state. Uh, Mussolini wrote in Avanti Italian socialism has no commune behind it he's referring to the French or 13 years of exceptional laws as the Germans experienced it needs to live a heroic and historical day it needs to clash as a bloc against the bourgeois bloc. So here you can see the future fascist yeah, just a little, a little bit, bit, right?
0: It's a the little f- bit passionate for a scientific socialist who's supposed to be analyzing the class contradictions and, you know. Yeah. Heroism. <laughs> History. Yeah. And act. Yeah. Right. Which
1: is yeah. a later fascist slogan. Yeah. You know, just exactly. don't, don't think, act. Uh, in January of 1913, police killed seven demonstrators at Rokogorga. Gorga. Uh, a very, very important little, well, little not a little incident, I suppose, but, you know, in the grand scheme of massacres of strikers and demonstrators, it doesn't seem that huge, but it was. The leaders of the CGL and the PSI, these are the two uh, union movements, uh, they got together and they agreed that if more deaths like these occurred, that they would launch a general strike. So, socialists met and agreed on a plan of action. This struck me as unusual. Of course, there was still some ambiguity. Uh, nobody asked how long the strike would last. <laughs> would it be for a limited period, indefinite? You know, wh- which will it be? In early 1914, there was uh, another crisis looming a dispute between the railwaymen and the government. And some thought that this might lead to a general strike. But at the last moment, the Union gave, gave way. Uh, what was a, there was also uh, another thing going on, agitations on behalf of two men who had been called up for military service. One was an anarchist and one was a syndicalist. Now, I, me- I mentioned these, I know it sounds very small, I mentioned these because Malatesta was involved. So, Enrico Malatesta, the anarchist leader, had been hoping that these things w- would blow up, that they would, uh, you know, somehow become more and, and maybe yes. galvanize uh, the masses. <clears throat> but, but they didn't. Um, but he found an opportunity. So, the first Sunday in June was a celebration of the first statutes of 1848. So 1848 was the the revolutionary year when uh right. Italy tried yeah. to uh unite for the first time and you had a a short very short-lived republic in Rome and I guess it it's it's legend and uh you know revered by Italian nationalists as you know this is when we got our start. Uh, But the celebrations uh, now feature military parades, anathema to anti-militarists, of course. So Malatesta has decided we're going to agitate on behalf of the two guys who who got drafted. And we're going to hold anti-militarist demonstrations. So while the army parades, we're going to parade against them. And we'll do it on June 1st. Oh, sorry sorry the first sunday in june whatever date that was that was going to be so prime minister salandra found out about the plan and uh, decreed he prohibited all such public demonstrations uh, malatesta was disappointed <laughs> but decided not to challenge the government there but on june 7th he held a private meeting at ancona uh, the meeting was peaceful the meeting ended peacefully, and then after that, there was an incident. Uh, there, you, you had a police officer, an overzealous police officer, although, although one of my sources, Wolf, says the police officer was overly timorous, cowardly. <laughs> but this police officer had blocked a narrow street adjoining the site of the meeting. It was one of the exits. So oh. some of the people at the meeting are leaving that way, find their way blocked by police, uh, there was a clash and three demonstrators were killed. Mm. So if you remember Rocagorga, the socialists and the unions had agreed, if there are more deaths like that, we launch a general strike. Yeah. Well, there's your three deaths. But the socialist and union leaders were caught unprepared and they didn't talk. The maximalists, these are the extreme socialists, decided not to wait. They wanted the uh, the prestige, if you want to call it that, of calling the strike themselves. So they did. They called for a strike the following day. And again, they didn't say how long it was going to go on. Right. And then in a move, in a blunder that I find really difficult to understand, they didn't telephone the leader of the CGL, of the, of the <laughs> union. They sent a telegram. <laughs> and the telegram was intercepted by police. Right. So now the police know what you're doing, but the CGL don't. The CGL found out about the strike by reading a newspaper. The Republicans and the USI, the other big labor uh, movement, union movement, the syndicalists, they also proclaimed the general strike and then the railwaymen fumbled the ball normally the railway union was the loudest and the most aggressive but they had just gotten a, a deal with the government so they had to think it over and they delayed until the next day malatesta was furious at them and and rightly so the railwaymen Decided to notify all of their local groups to shut down the rail. And they did it by sending telegrams. Mm. They sent a hundred and four telegrams to their local <laughs> groups and all of them were blocked. The government controls the telegraph, <laughs> you yeah, idiots. Just... They sent five personal messengers to the most critical areas. Only two of them got through without delay. So the end result was the railway system was interrupted, but not shut down. And that let the army move, which should not have happened. The general strike lasted all of two days. And then they called it off. The The socialist leaders and the union leaders just failed. There's no other way to describe it but abject failure. Uh, they were intimidated by counter demonstrations. You had nationalist Uh, students and even just you know pro-government citizens who were counter-demonstrating even malatesta had to admit uh unarmed workers couldn't face soldiers he said your mistake has been not to get ready so today you must stay calm this i advise you to avoid new killings the strike but
0: isn't he shouldn't they have gotten them ready (laughs) Sorry. <laughs> yeah, anarchists getting organized. <laughs> isn't that your isn't that your job though as an organizer to actually get ready though?
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, but he's kind of the voice or the inspiration. He's not in a position of controlling the unions right. or the socialist party. Right. And, I mean, here he's advising them. That's his that's my position. I'm I'm your advisor and I'm saying, "Okay, you you failed."
0: And who, who appointed him, <laughs> the
1: advisor? Self, self-appointed <laughs> conscience of the revolution. All right. Okay. All right. Got it. Ah, there's no real competition for the post. Maybe Mussolini <laughs> thinks differently. But. So the strike was spotty. Uh, it was fairly successful in central Italy. There were limited demonstrations in Rome, uh, violent demonstrations in Florence, in uh, Bologna and Parma and Terni, which pretty small place. Uh, There were mass demonstrations in Milan, and 30,000 workers in Turin went on strike, Torino. But in Genoa, only the docks and shipyards were affected, and in the whole province of Veneto, so the whole north, uh, northeast, I guess, only the city of Venice. Uh, In the south, the strike was limited to Naples, Palermo, and Bari uh salandra won a vote of confidence in parliament by 254 to 112 and that's when the strike suddenly turned into a serious insurrection in ravenna isn't that doesn't that happen a lot it's over but it's not
0: yeah yeah i mean it's um yeah you know this is also the time this is not we're not that far from like the russian revolution of 1905 there are big things happening with workers and their unions and and strikes right yeah all all over over the place all over the place so in ravenna on the
1: adriatic coast uh they called a meeting for the 10th and the word spread and some workers from outside the town and uh, a lot of the sharecroppers this is central italy right the most volatile area part of the romagna uh about 18,000 workers and sharecroppers came in from the countryside by bicycle. Huh. So they cycled into town to be at the meeting. Huh. There were speakers there, a socialist, a Republican, and an anarchist. And they fired people up. They they were definitely feisty, and they got everybody going. So all of these cyclists returned to the countryside and spread the word That the revolution had begun, not only in Ravenna, but also in Milan, in Florence and in Rome, which it hadn't, but that's what they thought. Uh, The roads and railways were completely blocked and the telephone lines were cut, which left the army in an unusual position of not knowing what was going on and not being able to move. Uh, General Agliardi and six of his officers uh, encountered a peasant blockade and surrendered. They surrendered their swords to the peasants rather than risk bloodshed, I assumed their own. Unfortunately, the news came into Ravenna that the revolution hadn't actually started anywhere else. So by the evening of the 12th, Republican deputies were traveling around the countryside, uh, unfortunately breaking the news that the strike was over. So the leaders... uh, are basically blamed for failing to take charge and failing to exploit the situation. Mm -hmm. But I found this from uh, maximalist socialist leader Serati. He said, we could not, we should not have obeyed the amorphous mass of the non-organized. What would Lenin have said?
0: He, I mean, Lenin would say, "Are you know, we should organize them." I mean, that's what that that's the whole that's the whole question, right? That that's the whole question of. What is to be done? Like you need you need the newspapers and you need the unions and you need the party and you need the clandestine organization and everything. So,
1: yeah, maybe you should reach out to this amorphous mass of (laughs) non-organized because they seem readier to go to go further than you are. Mind you, uh, Serrati did make this point. Stones against troops are not enough. And to preach revolution to unarmed people is assassination.
0: Oh, I think Lenin would certainly agree with that. Okay. Um, so they, yeah, they, you know. This is this, 19, what... <clears throat> sorry. I was just going to say, like, when, when we talked about the 1905 Russian Revolution, we talked about how both Trotsky and Stalin both kind of showed up at the end and made a speech where they were like, well, this uh, thing we've won is not good enough, but uh, we're standing down because we don't want to get massacred. So uh, stand down, everybody. And they kind of like, some of them went to jail and. Some of them went underground and you know right. they returned to so it's not every you know it is it does take some kind of good analysis to know when you can't when it's not your your day yeah <laughs> but but yeah. uh you gotta work you know beforehand so that when your day comes you're ready for it and that's not what happened yeah
1: uh this was 1914 so world war one began And the revolutionary group's uh, unity uh, wasn't enough to keep Italy out of the war. Uh, Italy ended up joining in in 1915. The socialists opposed the war. They called it bourgeois imperialist war. So they were against. The republicans, though, split. Some of them saw the war as a fight for democratic principles. Yeah. All right, so you have Britain and France and now Italy fighting against the Austrian and German emperors.
0: Okay, but aren't
1: you on the same side as Russia? Right.
0: And uh, exactly how democratic is is Britain's rule over India? (laughs) Or how democratic (laughs) is Italy even?
1: So, yeah. Um, Some... uh, Radical syndicalists, including Mussolini, uh, thought that the war would be an opportunity to create a revolutionary situation. So he's more like Lenin in this regard.
0: Yeah, exactly. This is exactly Lenin's position. So they're aligned uh, at this point in time. Gonna, <laughs> Mussolini they're, and they're, Lenin. What an argument! They're going to they're gonna diverge. <laughs> they're going to diverge pretty dramatically in the next uh, decade or so. Yeah, I've got, I've got a quote. I've got a great no war but the class war quote from from old Benito here. He says, "If the fatherland, a lying fiction whose time has now run out, demands new sacrifices of money and of blood, the proletariat, which follows socialist directives, will reply with a general strike. War among nations will then become class war." So, so there. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> the fatherland is a lying fiction from Mussolini. <laughs>
1: wow Mussolini proposing class war yeah you you know you could post that quotation and ask people to guess who said this Guess who
0: said this right
1: (laughs) (laughs) nobody would get it no so So next um, episode i guess we'll
0: follow the dominoes we follow the dominoes my goodness yeah the balkan wars have begun begun the balkan wars have i guess to quote yoda to paraphrase yoda so um well, that was amazing. I thought. I mean, I, I this researching this was pretty shocking. And I think when we come back to various elements of this, when we come back to the Italian socialists and communists, when we come back to the Libya war and the long guerrilla war and the Arab world in general, I think is going to be a huge story that we follow in a lot of detail in between World War One and Two. Mm-hmm. So, and and I think there's a lot that's gonna be shocking to me (laughs) when i read about it Mm -hmm. because this was this was really shocking i i didn't really know about italian colonialism Uh, wow